I would invite you to turn to that portion of Scripture that we read, Acts chapter 7. And as you do that, let me just cut to the chase. And let me speak, first of all, to those who are in the church here just now who are not Christians. Let me speak to those who have um, never bowed in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and can I speak to you, and can I just ask you, how long is it that you have come to church for? Now, this is not, I'm guessing, the first time that you've been in church. You know? You've probably come to church for many, many years by yourself or with your family or with friends. And you've seen, I'm sure, other people become Christians. You know, you've seen this... <laughs> This thing that's talked about in church, you know, that idea of conversion, you've seen that happen to other people, but it's never happened to you. You know that thing where Martin Luther King had had a dream? I don't have a dream, but I tell you this, I I do have a prayer. Um, And I pray that this next, whatever it is, 25 minutes or so, that these are the most important minutes of your life. You know, I I pray that as we as a congregation look at this speech that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin, I pray that what happens today is that the Holy Spirit works in the most incredible way and breaks down that stubbornness, you know. I pray that that sort of constant rejection of God that happens Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, that it is replaced today with this revelation of who Jesus Christ is. I pray very simply that you are saved. I pray that there is a soul saved in here. And I'd say to you, if you're a Christian, as we look at this stuff today, you be praying the same thing. Now, with that said, let me tell you what we're going to do here. What we'll do in our first point of the sermon is really just about a few sort of general observations of, or general observations about the speech that Stephen gives. And then in subsequent two points, we'll actually sort of think about the two main arguments that he, that he makes before the Sanhedrin. So a few general observations to start with. And then the other two points will be about the content, you know, the actual argument that he gives here. So let's get into this. And let's think firstly about the type of speech we've got here, the type of speech. And I must say to you, before we go on, remember the location. Remember where we are. Where are we? We are in the first century. Okay? And we're in Jerusalem, and we've seen this crowd stirred up. We've seen this man, um, Stephen, arrested, and he's chucked into a hall full of religious authorities, and he's been accused. And then what we've got here in Acts 7 is his turn. Okay? He's been accused. People have spoken. Now it's his turn in this trial to speak. So what should we be thinking about? What should we be noticing here? The first thing that needs emphasizing is that this speech in Acts chapter 7 is an important speech. 
Okay, this is a very important speech. Now, how can I say that? How do we know that this is an important speech? <laughs> we know it's an important speech by sheer length, don't we? I mean, this is one mahusif speech, isn't it? I mean, this is long. This is, what is it, 52 verses. So this is the longest of all of these speeches that Acts is famous for. The longest of all these speeches that are dotted all the way through this New Testament book. So, it's long, but why? Why has Luke chosen to document this particular speech in such length? Well, I guess whether it's been on the news or whether it's on film, everyone has seen um, sort of footage of when a space shuttle is preparing for re-entry into the Earth, okay? Into the Earth's atmosphere. Everyone's seen footage of that, okay? And so you have all will have seen that sort of point of separation that comes. You know, when the sort of space shuttle breaks bits off and sort of just casts them aside and they're released because they're just not needed. They're irrelevant. Well, friends, do you see that that is what is going on in this speech that we've got here? Because what happens here is the divergence or the separation of Christianity from legalistic, Judaistic worship. Right? Think about the crowd. Now, this crowd, up until this point, has really kind of viewed these early Christians in the first couple of chapters of Acts as being some of their same guys. You know? The crowd has seen that these early Christians worship, do you remember where? Solomon's Colonnade. That these early Christians are part of the temple worship. But here what happens? Here the, it's not just the religious authorities as before, but it's actually the crowd that are up in arms against Stephen. And here what we're going to find is that Stephen actually, here in a speech, speaks out against the worship. So this speech is very, very important because, it, get this, it marks Christianity's moving away from Judaistic forms of worship. So it is an important speech. A second sort of general um, observation, I guess, that we should pick up on is that it's also a, a Christ-glorifying speech. It's important, but it's Christ-glorifying. You see, what have we said? We've said to understand it, we've got to remember the location. So where is Stephen when he's given, when he's speaking? Where is he? He's in a trial. He's facing the jury. The guy stands accused. The guy, as we know, he's facing imminent death. And what else have we said? We said, wow, okay, he's facing all this, but now he's got this opportunity to speak. You know here we go. Here's his chance to address the Sanhedrin. Here's his chance to actually say, oh, no, 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 hang on. Here's his chance to avoid death. Do you know what we find? It's amazing. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. I mean, okay, he is going to address these charges that are leveled against him, but he's not going to do this to try and defend himself. No, he's going to take all of these accusations that are leveled against him. Do you know what he's going to do? In everything that he says, and at great personal cost to himself, 
he's going to seek to glorify Jesus Christ. So I'd say to you this morning, don't look at the speech and just think, okay, it's about separation, we get it. Look at this speech and see that what we've got here is a reminder to us, a reminder to you, that everything you are and everything that you do and everything you live for should be shaped, should be about bringing praise and bringing honour to Jesus Christ, even in the face of death. So it's important it's Christ glorified. But what, what I want us to, to do now is to consider, to go into that sort of second bit, and to consider the actual content, if you like, or to consider the sort of main thrust of what it was that Stephen is saying in this speech. So let's think about the first of his two main arguments. So our second heading, if you could follow me. Let's think about the wrong attitude, or the wrong approach, rather, to God's dwelling place. The wrong approach to God's dwelling place. Now, to work out Stephen's arguments here, what we've also got to do is we've got to really keep in view and keep in mind what it was that this guy has just been accused of. That's why we read the end of Acts chapter 16. Remember what it was that Stephen was accused of in front of the Sanhedrin? Do you remember? I'll tell you. Part of it was of being disrespectful toward the temple. That's the accusation. Disrespectful towards the temple. And what he does in this speech is he actually takes this accusation that he's been disrespectful against the temple. He takes that that accusation, he flicks it around, turns it on his head, and he lobs it back into the Sanhedrin. You know, he says to them, boys, you know, you're accusing me of being disrespectful for the temple, but here's how it is. It's not me. It's you. It's the Jewish authorities. It's the religious establishment. It is you guys who are getting the temple wrong. You see, um, I was reading this week about an incident that happened in a zoo in the US a couple of years ago. Um, so there was a couple of zookeepers, idiots, yeah. just idiots. And they were tasked with the job of moving a gorilla from one enclosure to another. Okay, so these couple of uh, zookeepers, what they do is they fill the, the ape full of uh, tranquilizers, you know, Somehow they managed to move it into this really quite small, fragile, uh, temporary metal cage. Okay? And of course, what happens? This is a 400-pound adult male gorilla. Okay? So he wakes up and finds himself in this tiny little cage, and he just bangs the door open. He escapes and causes all manner of chaos. Right? It's kind of obvious. But you see, that's what we've got here. Because in reversing this accusation about the temple, what Stephen says to the Sanhedrin is, you guys, you don't get it. You are trying to confine God to box. You are getting God wrong. And so you are also getting the worship of God wrong. And do you see, 
what he does to make his point in this speech? Do you see how he makes his point about the temple? Because he starts the speech talking about Abram, doesn't he? And what he's doing, when he, when he, when he goes through this, he's picking out the places in Scripture that show that the worship of God was never all about the temple. The worship of God, never all about the temple. Starts off with Abram, right? And what does he say about Abram? He says that God called Abram when he was in Mesopotamia. So why is Stephen telling the Sanhedrin that? Well, he's saying, look, before there was a temple, guys, before there was even a promised land, God was speaking to and God was, was relating to his people. Okay, so that's Abram. Then Stephen goes on to speak. Did you see who's next? He kind of focuses on Joseph. So why does Stephen mention Joseph? Well, he's saying the same thing. I think it's six times in three verses Stephen mentions Joseph in Egypt. Emphasizes the word. Uses it all the time. It's Egypt, guys. It's Egypt. His point's the same. Before there was a temple. Outside of the land of promise, God's still there. He's caring for his people. Then after Joseph, he goes on to Moses. Did you see what he says about Moses? He talks about a burning bush. And in verse 33, he emphasizes, look guys, that place was holy ground. Not the temple, not the land of promise. And then he makes his point so explicit. Because eventually... He builds up in the speech and he talks directly about the tabernacle. He talks directly about the temple. He quotes Isaiah 66 and he says, The Most High does not live in houses made by men. Heaven is his throne. Friends, do you, do you see that what's happening here? Do you see what's, what's going on? Stephen is accused of disrespecting the temple. He turns it around and he says, no, it's you, it's the Sanhedrin, you've got it wrong. God was never confined to a box. He is majestic and he is transcendent. He is the God of the universe and he deserves to be worshipped like that. That's fine. But you, you can look at this and we can all look at this and think, right, we understand what Stephen's saying. He's before the Sanhedrin. He makes his point about worship and how they're getting worship wrong. But you might be sitting there this morning thinking, how is this possibly relevant to us? And I, I don't know why you came to church this morning. I presume and hope that it's because you want the Holy Spirit to transform your souls. You know, you want life refreshing stuff, do you? You look at this about temple worship. I think this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't relevant to me. Can I tell you that this is the most relevant stuff? Because you and I make the same mistake as the Sanhedrin all the time. You see, the Sanhedrin had a deficient view of the grandeur of God. And because of that, they were getting the worship of God wrong. Do you see what they were doing? They were magnifying in the temple. They were magnifying not God, but the ways of worshipping God. And guess what? We do that all the time, don't we? I mean, our view of God is just so inadequate. 
it is so deficient that what happens is that we, we make idols of our ways and methods and forms of worship. We build these up, you know. We praise and worship the style of singing in the church rather than praising the God who deserves to be sung to. You know, we make idols of the frequency of attendance rather than than bowing before a God that we should want to come in here to worship. Do you see how crazy it is to see that it's madness? But it's true. We do this. We, like the Sanhedrin, worship the temple rather than worshiping God. But there is something else, and it involves those people that I began the sermon speaking to, those that we are praying for. Those who are not Christians. See, I would like to ask you, if you're not a Christian, whether you think you being in here pleases God. Do you think coming to church this morning pacifies God in some way? Or or pleases him? Because I I tell you, it, it doesn't. You see, what what Stephen's telling us here is that the people of Israel, they had got the temple wrong because the temple was only ever supposed to be temporary. It was supposed to point forward. It was supposed to point to the one that Stephen is trying to honor here in this speech. So I say to you, you want want to please God? Do you want the salvation that we talked about at the beginning of the service. Can I say to you, it it doesn't come just by you coming into this building. It doesn't come by you trying to jump through a few sort of religious hoops. That's not it. Salvation comes only through the one who is the true place of worship. Salvation only comes through the one where God and man meet. Salvation only comes through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is what the Sanhedrin were getting wrong. So we see a few general observations, and we see this this argument that Stephen's saying the Sanhedrin are wrong about the temple. But I want to close with Stephen's second line of argument here. So we've had the wrong approach to God's dwelling place. Let's close thinking about the wrong approach to God's chosen leaders. Let me say it again. The wrong approach to God's chosen leaders. Now, I sound like a parrot. What have we been saying all along? If you want to understand, we want to understand Stephen's argument, We've got to keep in view what it was that he was accused of, right? Now, we've seen part of that. He's accused of speaking ill of the temple. What's the other side of it? What's the other part of the accusation against him in this trial? He's accused of blaspheming Moses and the law. Okay, get that. That's the accusation leveled against this man. He's blaspheming Moses and the law. So how does he tackle that? What what does he do with this second accusation? Well, here's the thing. 
as he goes through all of those Old Testament characters we've been talking about, you know, from, what is it, Abraham all the way to about David, I think. Not only does he point out how God was relating to these people outside the temple, he does something else. He also points out how God has lovingly and consistently sent people to Israel to speak about salvation and how at each point with each of those guys, the people of Israel have rejected those leaders. Now just follow me, think about this, look at the argument. He speaks of Abram to set out the establishment of Israel. Then he passes over Isaac and he passes over Jacob. Who does he get to? Joseph. And he focuses on Joseph's rejection. So Stephen's before the Sanhedrin and he says to these guys, he talks about the envy. He talks about the, the jealousy that the people that his brothers had towards Joseph. Stephen sets Joseph up as what? As God's chosen leader. Rejected by men, right? Then he gets to Moses, this one specifically accused of, of speaking against, and he sets it again. Same thing. The people of Israel rejected Moses. Look, he says, Moses given to the people of Israel, but verse 27, they say, who made you ruler over us, Moses? Or Moses given the law, but the people reject him, that they make an idol. Verse 35, they reject Moses. Verse 39, they reject Moses. Do you see it? Time after time after time in the speech, Stephen says that God, in his mercy, sends people to speak about salvation. And they have those people, what do they do? They just spit in his face. They reject, they deny these men. And then I wonder... Do you see what happens in the Sanhedrin? Do you see how it ends? Because this place blows up, man. I mean, that tension. This tension that has been sort of building and building and building through these accusations. Imagine. The tension's building through this speech. They're like, where's he going with all this history? The tension just explodes. Because what Stephen does in this sort of moment of sheer courage as he just lays it out before these guys. Because not only, get this, not only does he say that the people of Israel have historically rejected all of these men of God. You see what he says? He actually associates those guys, the people in the room with him, the Sanhedrin. He says, you've done the same thing. And you see how he does it? All the way through. This whole speech, when he's been referring to the people of Israel, did you see what he calls them? Every time he calls them our fathers. He says, our fathers did this. Our fathers did this. But then, right at the end, he changes it. And he says to the Sanhedrin, you see those ancient people? Do you see those people who have rejected God? Those are not our fathers. Those are, verse 51, your fathers. He stands and he says, because they, the Sanhedrin, have taken part in the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ, that they stand in this long line of rebels 
who have rejected God's purposes, who have stubbornly refused to accept these messengers that God has sent to them. In fact, these guys are worse because they have rejected and killed the Son of God. And friends, the question I want to ask the unbeliever as we close is this. Do you see and appreciate that you stand alongside the Sanhedrin in that long, long line of rejection? Do you see that? Do you see that by not having faith in Jesus Christ that you are like them, rejecting God? Now you might, because millions of people make this mistake, you might think and might cling to the hope that by not sort of actively seeking to reject God, that by not really coming a decision about Jesus Christ, that God's going to be okay with that. But let me tell you, in the sight of God, there is no difference between being apathetic towards Jesus and being the very person who picked up the hammer and nailed his hands to the cross. Because both are stubborn refusals to recognize Jesus as the Christ. So I'm praying, and I really hope that every Christian in this room is praying with me, that as we see this pattern of rejection, that if you're not a Christian, that you no longer want to be a part of this. That, you know, as we look from Abram to Joseph to Moses to David, that you see this morning that God has been patient throughout history and that he has established his great and wonderful plan of salvation. He has done that. And I hope that you see what the Sanhedrin could not see, that they had just crucified and killed the Christ. And I'll ask you, I hope for the last time, will you come to him? Not tomorrow or when you go home, but now. Will you set aside that stubbornness? Will you see that Jesus Christ, the one that's spoken of in church, is glorious? I mean, he is gracious and loving. Will you stop resisting the Holy Spirit? And will you come to the righteous one who has died for sin? Will you come to Christ? Will you come to Jesus? Will you come? Let's pray.